For those of you who'd like to follow along, I'm reading the last paragraph of the 10th chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. The historian tells us, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. It's interesting once in a while to pause to think about our individual histories. And possibly, with the exception of those of you who are very, very young, almost all of us can remember people who have made an impact on our lives, either because they added something to us or gave us the opportunity to add to them. For many of us, it was a teacher, perhaps a doctor, a classmate, a neighbor. Some of you might be here today calling yourself a Christian because some stranger appeared out of the mist as you walked along in life and shared with you the gospel of Jesus Christ, and scarcely had you believed and taken the hand that Jesus extended to you, and that stranger disappeared. You may not even know his or her name. But in all of our lives, there are those mysterious people that we remember with thankfulness, people we would now like to know more about. There are people like that that we meet on the pages of the Bible. People who appear briefly on the stage of sacred history, make their intended contribution to its flow of events, and then disappear forever from our view. We wonder what became of the shepherds and the wise men who visited Jesus on the night of his birth and later when he was a young child. And we wonder what became of Nicodemus and that unnamed Samaritan woman Jesus met at a well whose conversations are recorded at length in the opening chapters of the Gospel of John. We'd like to know more of the circumstances of the life of the widow of Nain whose son died but was restored to life by Christ, and the name of that boy with the lunch that Jesus used to feed a crowd numbering in the thousands. Just who was Melchizedek in the Old Testament? Just who was Theophilus in the New? No thoughtful reader of Scripture can fail to be curious about the state of the heart and the mind of the rich young ruler, and we wonder what became of Jairus' 12-year-old daughter whom Jesus brought back from death. But of all of the men and the women we have met in Scripture, men and women who played cameo roles in its history, there are a few so intriguing as the members of a small family that lived in Bethany near the city of Jerusalem. There were three of them that we know about. 
There were two sisters named Martha and Mary, and their apparently younger brother, Lazarus. They appeal to us in part because we know so little about them. More is said about them than many of the other characters of Scripture, but not enough to satisfy our curiosities. And adding to their attraction to our minds is the obvious affinity that existed between the three of them and our Lord Jesus. More than once in the Gospels, we find him as a guest in their home. And his fondness for each of them is not merely assumed from the sacred record, but plainly stated there. You will be interested to know if you don't, and you might be surprised to learn that there are very few people in the Gospels who are described as being loved by Jesus. The love of Jesus has become so dominant a theme in the modern preaching and believing of the gospel, one would expect Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to be filled with statements that Jesus loved this man, he loved that woman, he loved this group and that group. But actually, in all of the gospels, there are only five people that we are told specifically that Jesus loved. One of them is anonymous. It's the author of the fourth gospel who humbly refers to himself in no other way but as being that disciple whom Jesus loved. Another of these people to whom the love of Jesus is specifically ascribed is the rich young ruler, a fact that has to be taken carefully into consideration by all who really want to know the state of his heart and his mind and his relationship with God. And the other three are the members of this family. In John eleven five, we read that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It seems likely that as Peter's home in Capernaum was the Lord's home away from home when he was in Galilee, so the home of Martha and Mary was his retreat when he was in Judea. In the Gospels, we read of Jesus' daily schedule the last week of his life, early in the morning until evening, he was in or near the temple teaching those who would listen, healing those who sought his touch, dealing with the challenges of his enemies. But at night, more drawn and more exhausted with each passing day, he retreated to some undesignated haven of rest in the village of Bethany, quite possibly to the home of these very good friends. This closeness and familiarity heighten our desire to know more about these people. We speculate in vain as to the origins of their friendship, and our questions go unanswered about the roles that they played in the life of the early church. But what is recorded of them is useful for our instruction and our edification. I'd like to talk with you this morning about this ancient family of believers and particularly the sisters, Martha and Mary. The most important event recorded in Scripture involving this family is found in the 11th chapter of John. There we read not of the resurrection, but the resuscitation of their brother, Lazarus. 
Resurrection is a word that we use to describe the experience in which someone passes victoriously through death and emerges safely on the other side, never to die again. Jesus did that. And all of us who believe in him, by his grace, will have the same experience. Resuscitation, on the other hand, is reaching into death and dragging someone back to this side and they will die again. This was the experience of Lazarus. And this resuscitation of Lazarus is arguably the greatest of all of the miracles of our Lord Jesus. There were two other times when he resuscitated the dead. One time raising the daughter of a man named Jairus in Capernaum, and the other restoring to life the son of an unnamed widow of the Galilean village of Nain. But in each case, Those resuscitated had been dead for a very short time. Lazarus had been in his grave for at least four days. And the other two incidents were relatively private and obscure, but the restoration of Lazarus was very public and well noted. And while the other two took place in earlier times in Jesus' ministry and in distant Galilee, the incident involving Lazarus took place as Jesus' life was drawing to an end, There was widespread public speculation about his identity, and it took place within a stone's throw of the walls of Jerusalem. It's with interest that we notice the effect that this miracle had on others. Those inclined to believe, believed all the more strongly because of this miracle. While those inclined not to believe were not only not persuaded to believe, but goaded by the miracle to heighten their efforts to destroy Jesus who had done the miracle. And by this we're reminded that the purpose behind the Lord's miracles was never to convince non-believers to believe, but to increase the confidence of those to whom the gift of faith had already been given. You and I as Christians contemplate this miracle involving Lazarus, or we gaze on the beauty of a sunset, or hold a child in our arms. And these and myriad other experiences point our minds toward the heavens and prompt songs of praise to the one forever enthroned there. But the atheist who stumbles on the story of Lazarus The agnostic who stands near us and sees the beauty of nature that charms us. A non-believer holds a child. And whatever each might feel or think, his heart and his mind are not drawn by these experiences to our God. To ancient believers and to believers in our time, Jesus said, It has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. While the most important piece of history involving this family is that recorded in John 11, the most familiar is the story found in Luke 10 that I read just a moment ago. That Martha was the oldest of the three, the matriarch of the family, is suggested by Luke's description that a woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her house. 
Here there is no mention of Lazarus, making us wonder whether he lived independently somewhere nearby. But of the two sisters, we are told that Mary sat at Jesus' feet, giving rapt attention to his word, while Martha labored in the kitchen preparing a meal. The two sisters are a study in contrasts. Mary with her devotion to the Lord and his word, Martha with her service and her good works. There is in the church at large a similar divide, one that is both theological and practical. The theological issue pits the Catholic and Arminian Protestant churches against those of the Reformed and Lutheran traditions. The issue has to do with the grounds for salvation, and the question is, can faith alone save our souls, or must that faith be mixed with good works in order to become eternally effective? Everyone agrees that faith in Christ is essential for salvation, but not all agree that such faith is sufficient to save our souls all by itself. I hope that you know that one of the mottos of the Protestant Reformation was the Latin phrase sola fide. It means faith alone, and it directly addresses this particular question. Our understanding of the scriptures is that the single thing that saves us and assures us of the eternal mercy of God is our faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as our Savior. In Romans 4, Paul said, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But what do the scriptures say? Abraham believed God, and that was accounted to him for righteousness. In Ephesians 2, Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. But let's be very careful that the faith that saves us is faith in a person and not faith in a moment. Too many people remember the time, the moment, in which they said the prayer or gave their heart to Jesus or walked the aisle and cling to that moment as if it all by itself, apart from everything else, is their eternal get-out-of-jail-free card. The faith that saves us is not faith in a moment. It's not faith in an experience. It is personal trust in Jesus Christ, faith that latches onto him and won't let go. Faith that clings to him from the glint of first awareness through all of the days of our lives and out into that eternity that transcends time. Faith that becomes a dynamic force in our lives, comforting us, guiding us, and changing us. This kind of faith and this kind of faith alone indeed saves our souls. Martha and Mary exemplify this great divide in the church. We might say that the Catholic Church and many Protestants honor St. Martha, who, by the way, had a younger sister named Mary. And many of us in the Reformed tradition honor St. Mary, who, by the way, had an older sister named Martha. Martha with her works, Mary with her devotion. 
From a practical standpoint, Martha and Mary represent the interests and inclinations of most Christians involved in churches. Some are drawn to activity, to service, to good works, while others assign a higher premium to Bible study and to prayer and to the worship of God. The danger to the church, to the fellowship of its people, and to the health of its life is that the Marthas tend to judge the Marys while the Marys are inclined to disapprove of the Marthas. What the church needs is for each of its members to be a combination of both. The same Bible that warns us against acts of hollow service also declares that faith without works is dead. If you identify with Martha, you might be well advised to pray about the ways in which God would have you be more like Mary. And if you see yourself as Mary, then you might carefully consider how the life of Christ's church would be richer if you were to imitate some of the energy and the efforts of her older sister. It isn't necessary for us to judge between the two. It is rather for us to recognize the need for both. The scene in Martha's house on that day is easy to imagine. The number of people who were there is not known. But almost never in the Gospels do we find Jesus alone, which means that the number of people Martha had to feed may have been rather impressive. But our attention is focused on only three of those who were present, that Martha, of course, and Mary, and Jesus himself. As the curtain rises on this familiar and important drama, we see the Lord standing or sitting somewhere in the house, probably with several people gathered around him, listening to what he had to say, and Mary sitting at his feet as close to him as she could be. So far as we can tell, this is the first time that Mary heard Jesus speak. And she was, as you and I are, mesmerized by his word. At an earlier time, while Jesus was fasting and when Satan tried to tempt him with food, the Lord quoted words found in the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And with Mary's spiritual sister, that Samaritan lady that Jesus met at the well, Mary sensed that the man before her was at least a prophet of God. And she desired nothing at that moment but to hear his every word. Meanwhile, out in the kitchen, the noise level is rising. We hear pots and pans banging on the stove and the clutter of silverware being handled by a very impatient person. Marcia rushes from the kitchen to the table, her arms heavy laden with dishes, each cup and each place placed on that table with a deliberate thud. There's an angry scrape of chairs being hastily arranged on a wooden floor, and every time she passes by the group around Jesus, she glares, but Mary doesn't seem to notice. And finally, able to restrain her frustration no longer, Martha approaches the Lord and says, Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Her complaint seems justified. In every household, there needs to be a division of labor with every person doing something resembling a fair share. 
Martha's exasperation seems to suggest that ordinarily her sister would have been helping. And it's interesting for us to notice that she directed her complaint not to her sister, but to the Lord. It would be fascinating to hear how a psychologist might analyze the meaning of that. Jesus' response to Martha conveys both fondness and a correction. His words, Martha, Martha, express his love for her and his understanding for her nature. While his statement, you're worried and troubled about many things, is a mild rebuke. On the surface, this doesn't seem fair. Martha is merely trying to be a good hostess. She has guests in her home and desires only to treat them well. What's wrong with that? We might ask. But in my opinion, in this story, Mary comes across not only as matriarchal, but perhaps just a tad overbearing as well. If she had approached her principal guest and asked him, are you hungry? What would you like for supper? Would you like to eat now or later? That would have been one thing. But there's no indication in the text that she asks such things. Rather, it seems that she just took it on herself to answer all of these questions without talking to Jesus, started preparations for a meal that wasn't expected or requested, and then was mad at her sister for not helping her do what she had determined to do. How often do we decide without asking what is best for another person and then get angry or hurt or frustrated when our efforts aren't appreciated? There's another story that is a lot like this in the fourth chapter of John. That's where Jesus' meeting with that woman at the well took place that I've mentioned a couple of times. That day, Jesus had walked a long distance with his disciples. In the heat of the day, about noon, he stopped to rest at the village well while his disciples went into town to buy groceries. They returned and prepared a meal, and they said to him, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus said, I have food to eat that you don't know. Because more important to Jesus are the needs of his own flesh were the needs of the hearts and the minds of others, many of whom were on their way out of the village to meet with him even as he spoke those words. When I was a student at Michigan State, there was a Christian man who was from Greece who was earning a doctor's degree at the university, was involved in some of our student activities. He was a very gentle, very loving, very wise man who understood not only modern Greek, but the Greek of the New Testament and became a real resource for many of us who had questions about what words in the New Testament meant in the original language. I remember one day he was talking about fasting and explaining what he believes good, real fasting is in the life of a Christian. He referred to Edison, who knew that he was getting very, very close to inventing the light bulb. And he was experimenting with this element and that element, each one perhaps working a little better, a little longer than the other. And he became so engrossed in his discovery and his work 
that he forgot to eat and worked for hours. And according to this good Christian man from Greece, fasting at its best is not deliberately setting aside a certain time not to eat, but becoming so engrossed by the word of God or by the work of Christ's church that one simply forgets to eat for a while. If Martha had asked the Lord, are you hungry? He probably would have said, I'd prefer simply to have you join your sister and the others, for I have things that I'd like to teach you. She didn't do that. And the dialogue in this familiar story is the result. Let's be careful that we don't run ahead of the Lord, assuming what is best, without having clear direction from him. We also notice that Jesus' words to Martha endorse Mary's devotion. He said, one thing is truly necessary, and Mary has chosen that, he said. Service and works are very important parts of the Christian life. Make no mistake about that. We're told that the Holy Spirit distributes gifts among the people of God with the intention that those gifts will be used in and through the ministries of the life of his church. And Paul said, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Service and works are so important, in fact, that if you're not serving Christ in some particular way that you can identify, you should be in prayer wondering whether your life is being stunted and the life of the church handicapped by your lack of involvement. But all of our service and each of our good works come to nothing if they're not prompted by the kind of devotion that put Mary at the feet of Jesus. In Matthew 7, Jesus anticipates the day of judgment. For those of you who are still thinking about who Jesus is, I urge you to consider the astounding claim that he makes about himself in these words near the end of that chapter. He says that he's going to be there on the day of judgment, and in fact, he's going to have a decisive role in what happens to the souls of men and women and young people. But he says on that day, many will come to me, he said, and they will boast to me of all of their good works done in my name. And to some of them, Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I don't even know who you are. The Old Testament book of Micah was written to people whose religious works were many, but whose hearts were far from God. And God commissioned this man named Micah to address this condition among his covenant people. And he had Micah say this, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. From time to time, our presbytery acts on calls issued to men being considered as pastors of member churches. And it's important that the presbytery be satisfied that these men understand and are committed to the Westminster standards and that they have the requisite educational credentials and that they are indeed called into the ministry by the Holy Spirit. 
but we need also to be careful to learn that they sit regularly at the feet of Jesus. The nominating committee of this church has begun its work. And in my opinion, they should be looking for men to lead this church into the future as its elders, to be sure that they know the scriptures, that they are familiar with the Westminster Confession and committed to it, that they are men of good character, they have experience in decision-making, but especially that they regularly sit at the feet of Jesus. Sunday school teachers should be professed believers in Jesus Christ. Men and women who enjoy the study of the teaching of the Bible and who love children, but above all else, we should be sure that they are numbered among those who faithfully take their places with Mary at the feet of Jesus. Worship is but an empty formality. Preaching and hearing are exercises in meaninglessness. Our prayers are barely heard. Our gifts are scarcely noticed. Our labors all come to nothing unless such things come from those whose greatest joy in life is sitting at the feet of Jesus. The church needs Martha's. It needs people willing to step forward to fill the offices and staff the committees of the church. It needs more of its members to volunteer, to mow the lawn, to pace the classrooms, to count the offerings, to lead worshipers to their seats on Sunday mornings, to sing with the choir, to teach the Sunday school classes. But as we Marthas are hurrying about our tasks, let's be sure to keep one ear tuned to these conversations in which Jesus is involved. As we rush from the kitchen to the dining room, let's stop for a moment, not to complain, but to listen. Remembering that while our good works might express our faith, they don't feed that faith. Jesus said to Mary, or of Mary, one thing is necessary, she has chosen that part. May Christ be pleased to be able to say that of each of us. Let us pray. Our Father, your word often becomes to each of us a mirror in which we see ourselves. And almost every one of us this morning sees himself or herself as being like Martha or being like Mary. And we pray that our consideration of their relative strengths and the need for both in the work of Christ might be beneficial as we pray about and commit ourselves to the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.